Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is archaeoastronomy? Did Native Americans build structures to help keep track of the heavens? If so, why? Welcome to the 716th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on ON 1240 Radio celebrating 70 years of broadcasting here in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. I'm Ben and those questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal, and papa, Paul. (laughs) Don't ever call me that again. (laughs) Today we address an old question, the prefix archaeo should be a dead giveaway of that. Uh, and we welcome your calls and emails during the show. It's 800-449. Oh, no, we do not welcome your calls today because we have, the lines will be tied up. But, however, we will welcome uh, your emails to paul at behindtheparanormal.com. We have to talk about putting in a chat room, Ben. Well, well baby steps, Father, baby okay. steps. So before we welcome our guest, uh, we will... Welcome our co-host to the show whenever he calls in, um, but that is our, our esteemed colleague, uh, Mark D'Antonio. Mark is a uh, genuine astronomer, as well as the uh, national uh, photo and video an- analyst for the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, and he's a perfect fit for this subject, so we'll, we'll have him on whenever, whenever he gets here. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Now to our guest. Dennis Stone is the second-generation owner of the 30-acre New Hampshire archaeological site formerly known as Mystery Hill, now known as America's Stonehenge. In fact, Dennis grew up there and has, has been involved with the site for the last 57 years, as have a variety of researchers. Dennis has also been a full-time commercial airline pilot, and he has traveled extensively around the world to ancient sites in Europe and North America. He has appeared on numerous television and radio shows since 1970. I first met Dennis's dad, Bob Stone, through the New England Antiquities Research Association in 1979, and as I recall, the youthful Dennis himself not long afterward. Today, Dennis and his wife, Pat, can usually be found at America's Stonehenge, located on a lovely rural hilltop in North Salem, New Hampshire. Or in Salem, New Hampshire. This is Dennis's first appearance on the show in two years. Too long. <clears throat> the website is StonehengeUSA.com. So, Dennis Stone, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Oh, hi, Paul and Ben. Thank you for having me on. Oh, well, it's great to have you back. So... Well, before we before we get get going on any sort of crazy topics, let's start with a simple but also crazy topic. So, give us a brief overview of America's Stonehenge and its history. Twenty five words or less. <laughs> He's oh kidding. <laughs> um, it's a mystery, that's for sure. And it's uh, well, I say uh, actually we have about one hundred and ten acres, and we have the uh, main complex, which is about one acre stone structures. These are stone chambers with stone roofs, uh, dry stone construction. No cement was used in the uh, construction. And these big roof slabs and wall slabs are all part of the bedrock. So somebody spent a lot of time uh, coring these stones, shaping them, transporting them, and building these uh, stone structures. And surrounding the main site are the astronomical alignments, which, again, consist of very large slabs of stone. Most of them were part of the bedrock at one time. And we think the site is a religious site, not a place where people live, not a habitat site. Uh, it's on top of a hill, and we're about 40 miles north of Boston, about 20 miles from the coast. Um, and we're going to be entering our um, 60th uh, anniversary next year on the summer solstice. Uh, we opened up uh, in 1958, and to my surprise, through my dad's records recently, we found it was uh, actually open on the summer solstice. Uh, so we'll have a little celebration next year. Mm. <coughs> cool. Maybe we'll be there for that, huh? Yeah, that sounds, be that cool. sounds like, yeah. a, like a fun <coughs> field trip. All right. So what's archaeoastronomy, 
And what's the evidence uh, that America's Stonehenge was used as such a site? Yeah, can you astronomy study of how ancient sites were set up in relation to, to the heavens, basically. Um, and these things are located all over the world. Uh, there are just thousands of these sites. And uh, over the years, it was discovered that there are alignments for the solstices, uh, summer and winter, spring and fall equinox. Uh, what we call cross-quarter days, days in between the seasons. Um, actually, uh, we have those at our site, just like Stonehenge, and we have um, alignments with the moon and stars. Um, the work on our site began 50 years ago. We just had our 50th anniversary of the work on Oculus astronomy at our site in 1967. And my dad and other researchers had seen a TV show about Stonehenge, and there was a CBS special. I think the mystery is Stonehenge. I think it was 1965 that that came out. And it was kind of based on Gerald Hopkins' book, Stonehenge Decoded. Um, and that book became very popular. And uh, they wondered, after seeing the TV show, whether some of our standing stones in the walls might have a special meaning, you know, where they put there in purpose for some reason. And so by 1967, they started clearing out what we call the winter solstice sunset alignment. Um, and that winter and the next two winters, they went up to watch the sun actually see it that would set on the stone. It was... We knew it was pretty close to the right direction, but we wanted to actually witness it. But it wasn't until 1970 that the New England weather cooperated. And <laughs> so on, uh, I think it was December 21st, 1974, of us went up there and we stood there and it was a beautiful day and it was very cold, snow on the ground. And uh, the sun actually sat on top of the stone. And um, that's the uh, picture that we used on the front cover of my dad's book that came out several years ago. Mm -hmm. So that was, as we stood there watching, I think it was probably the first people to see this in possibly a few thousand years. So... Wow. Um, and that, after that, the Oculus astronomy really began in earnest. We began surveying the site in 1973 through 77, and we sent that data to the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And about almost 40 years ago, we got the results back. And they said, if these stones were used for astronomical purposes, they don't quite work today due to the Earth's tilt, but they would work around 1800 BC plus or minus a couple hundred years. Hmm. And back seven years before that, we had a cop one of the 12 carbon datings we took. And that carbon dating in 1971 on the main site of Chamber and Ruins, uh, one of the structures, dated to about 2000 B.C. So both carbon dating and astronomical research and data seem to indicate the site was probably constructed around that time period. Interesting. Hmm. What, what exactly was carbon dated? As I recall, it was, was it old charcoal from fires or something? Because it has to be organic material. It does have to be organic. Yeah, you can carbon date anything that was living. Um, uh, shell, you know, bone, uh, wood, roots, anything like that. The first, uh, the, the first dating on that chamber in ruins in 1967 actually was a piece of a pine root that had grown through the chamber. Oh. And the stump was gone, but we have pictures of it from 1930s when the first research began. Actually, that was our other anniversary this year. The first archaeology began here in 1937. Um, and there's a picture of the stump. It was pretty decayed. And a gentleman from Harvard University, uh, the PVD Museum said, well, you know, kind of, and, and the person working on the site, they kind of felt that the stump probably went back to the uh, late 1600s because of its state of decay and diameter. They couldn't do the dendrochronology, you know, the three-ring data, yeah. too rotted. But by 1967, they sent a the piece of the stump, in, uh, the root in, and you don't build a structure around the tree and the stump and everything and the roots. You know, the tree grows through the wall, and that's what they obtained. And that came out to 1690 A.D. So we knew that the site was here before, for the first settle, recorded settlers, you know, in this area. Uh, in 1969, we went down below that, 
And we found uh, charcoal. We dated that to 3,000 years old. And two years later, in 71, we got more charcoal. And in that charcoal layer, there was uh, hammerstone, rubbing stone, stone scrapers, and stone swallings, where somebody had been actually shaping rock and left the little flakes behind below that. And that's right adjacent to the north wall of the Chamber of Ruins. Nothing had been disturbed. So we're actually dating that kind of that horizon there with that charcoal. And uh, below that, the bedrock had been removed. So somebody first had removed the bedrock for building material. Then they built the wall, and then the soil comes in later, at a later date, and builds up, and you have the stratigraphy, you know, the different color bands. And that was kind of nice because it showed no disturbance by anybody. You know, if it was turned over by somebody, it'd be all, you know, the bands would be broken and everything would be all mixed up. So it was charcoal, yeah. A piece of root, one of them, and then the other 11 were charcoal. Now, how has any progress been made on determining who built the site and uh, if people want to see pictures again i'll refer you to the um, to the website which is uh, stonehengeusa.com um so I, I remember in when i was hanging out with your dad that there were questions about whether it was uh pre-columbian european settlers and, and there's every evidence that there was you could even call it global trade in what we refer to as prehistoric times, uh, certainly Viking settlements in Newfoundland, and uh, even there was some argument that there were some here in Rhode Island too. <coughs> Excuse me, uh, were, were, uh, there's evidence for that. Uh, but who, who do you think built this site? The natives. Yeah, the, uh, I'm sorry, I just <laughs> interrupted. Oh no, no, it's okay. Uh, unless, unless, because we have the Adena culture in the Midwest and the, the mound builders, etc., there were native cultures who worked with stone. But as far as we know, not in New England, or at least as far as I know. So, so what, what's your take on, on who built the site? Yeah, that's a really great question. And that's, you know, one of the, you know, the biggest questions we have here is who built the site. Um, and there are three basic theories, um, depending who you talk to, you know, that it was built during the historic period, which we don't believe because of all the research we've done over 80 years. Um, no farmer. In fact, the gentleman that was up here was the fifth generation shoemaker. People get that wrong all the time. But no shoemaker would actually go through all this trouble of building thousands of feet of stone walls, you know, with standing stones, stone windows, and there's other features too we can talk about. But the main site too, moving some stones up to 30,000 pounds, you know, and no metal tool markings on them. The other one was uh, Native American, and we know they were here in New Hampshire going back at least 10,000 years. There's a site up in Jefferson, New Hampshire. Uh, up in the White Mountains, and that goes back between 10 and 12. It's a paleo site, so people often ask, well, who was here 4,000 years ago? There were people here even much, much earlier than that, the Native mm. American. And okay. we have found a wigwam site near our parking lot, about 30 feet across. That was found about 20 years ago. The carbon dating from two fire pits were 1,700 years old and 2,000. So that's a little bit later than the time that we were talking about. Um, and then the glacial cliff shelter on the other side has beautiful pottery from the, about the same time period, around 2,000 to 2,500 years old, middle woodland period pottery. The other theory is that people came from overseas to this place. And the reason they talk about that is we have found inscriptions here up in Maine all the way down to Brazil and all the way out to almost the west coast of the United States and then Central and South America. But there are also um, the style of construction, the shape, and the size of these stone structures have a very... Uh, close resemblance to what you find at the megalithic sites of Europe. And mm-hmm. Stonehenge is not the only one, as some people think. It's well publicized. They get about a million visitors. It's about 50,000 in Western Europe. And if you look at one of our structures called the V-Hut, it looks like some of the wedge tombs in Ireland. Also in Spain, the same kind of structure. Um, in uh, the East-West Chamber, we call uh, one of the chambers. 
It runs about 30 feet east and west out of True North, and it looks like the gallery graves. So gallery graves you find over in Ireland, and in France I saw a couple of them. Uh, I've been to Ireland, but I didn't get to see them up there. But they're in Holland, too, and I had some visitors recently from Holland going, oh, yeah, it's called the something or other. And it's a Dutch name, and they knew about it, and I've had other du- people from that area, and they go, oh, yeah, that's called the something or other. It's a, it's a Dutch name, but it's the same type of structure, the same shape, size, and orientation. And um, so the inscriptions, the size, shape, and structure of this, and also um, uh, place names. They're Dr. Barry Felt from Hobbit found list upon list of names in New England of rivers, mountains, valleys, and gorges that are both uh, Native American, like Merrimack River. It has a certain meaning behind it. But also in Celtic, over on the other side of the ocean, the same word with the same meaning. A few would be coincidental, but he found list upon list. I think people are traveling the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean coming to the Americas at a much, much earlier time and well before the Vikings or Columbus. Okay. Now, uh, getting back to the point of astronomical alignments, now, uh, I don't mean to sound, ask a dumb question, but wh- where do you stand in order to see, let's, let's just deal with the solstice for now, with the sun rising on the summer solstice, right on the point of that stone, which we all know and know and love, all right? Um, where do oh, you, yeah. st- <laughs> I mean, you could stand anywhere and something's going to appear at the top of a stone if it's coming up over the horizon. But wh- what's the actual alignment at the site? I mean, where do you stand to watch? This, the solstice sunrise where you know that it's lined up, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. you have to have like a foresight and a backside, otherwise you have nothing, you know. Right, like right. You, say, you, can make, you can look at your birthday up there, right, just moving yourself, you know, making the sunrise over that stone on your birthday if you want. Sure. You have to have a point where you stood, you know. Some, and what they did in the 1970s when they surveyed, they found that all the alignments go back to a two points, and they were only about 10 feet apart, just north of the sacrificial area. And that was determined around uh, during the survey from 73 to 77. And we looked back at the first researcher, Mr. Goodwin, in the 1930s, and he actually diagrammed and he photographed and he talks about two cairns that were standing there. And he thought there were beehive chambers coupled, uh, actually connected to the oracle chamber. They were not connected. In fact, there's an under, one of the underground storm drains. There's a system of about uh, 12 underground drains, some of them 75 feet long. So they were never connected. The strains in the way, for one thing, they were not attached. And in the late 30s, you see a photograph of a tripod with a hoist, and he's lifting up stones from these two cons because they thought they were just rubble, and he destroyed what we now call the Astronomical Center. And um, that was found 40 years after he destroyed it. But fortunately, the photographs, diagrams, and his text talk about that. And um, these people, these ancient people, we think, chose two points because all the alignments work off the far distant horizon, the horizon around the hills is actually about a half a degree up look. It makes for a very nice shop, moon, or sunrise. If it was zero elevation, it was it gets very distorted by the atmosphere. So if you wait a little bit when the sun rises off the ocean, like you go down to the ocean and you watch the sun as, or the moon rising on the water, it's all distorted and everything. If you wait about a half an hour or so, a little bit less than that, the moon and the sun get smaller, and they're very sharp, and it makes for a more accurate alignment. So the hill around here, the hills all around here are a little bit higher than us, and it's like the back of a serpent going up and down. And they actually split up those stones, including the one that you mentioned. That one's kind of neat because it's asymmetrically shaped. The point's off to the left side of it. If you look at the far, uh, it's off to the, yeah, look, I'm going to make sure I'm looking at it correctly here. And if you look at the far distant horizon, uh, it's shaped the same way as the top of the rock. Or they actually shaped the rock to fit the notch in the horizon. Um, and they did the same thing in European sites. So the point's actually on the left side, and it slopes down to the right side, and the horizon has the same shape. 
So if you're standing at a stone circle and you're looking at the top of that rock in the horizon on June 20th or 21st, the sun rises 90 degrees to the slope of that stone and the horizon at the same time. Hmm. There's one in Scotland called Belcoy, and that has about a 10-mile alignment, I think it is. And you look at the stone, you have a position where they found that you actually stood, and it makes for about a 10-mile, like, gun sight, if you will, a very accurate alignment. And the further from your foresight to your backside, the more accurate the alignments are. So you do have to have a point you stood at. In this case, we have a stone circle, and we also have the astronomical center, which you can stand up there and actually watch it rise over the horizon from that point, too. Okay. We have a question. I'm going to start. Mark, I hope everything's okay, but he hasn't called in. Uh, but he did send oh, in two okay. questions, uh, which proceed right from where we've left, left off the discussion, Dennis. Uh, and, of course, you've already begun to answer the first part of this. Does this site have sight lines that align with a particular object in the sky at specific times of the year? So uh, we've already talked about the solstice, but what about uh, does it align with other? Are there alignments with other objects in the sky? Uh, it does align with the moon. The moon also um, during the eighteen and a half year lunar cycle. Um, but so that's not every year, though. That's you know, like nineteen sixty nine, the year we went to the moon was a lunar major standstill, north and south. And every eighteen and a half years after that, we'd have a lunar major. Uh, standstill halfway between nine years, you have the lunar minors. So we have the alignments of the moon, too, and the sun, and the north star. But when we sent this information almost 40 years ago to the Harvard-Smithsonian um, Center for Research down in Cambridge, Mass., they said uh, the next year when they get the report back, they said you have not only what I, we already just mentioned, but they said you have 23 star alignments. So mm. we have um, both lunar, solar, and stellar alignments. Uh, we don't have any, you know, planet or anything like that. Planets are very irregular, and the, I'm not aware of any, you know. Venus is a very important thing for phases that the that it goes goes through. The Mayans are really particularly keyed into that. Um, but so we have those three alignments. Um, those alignments are the three different, um, you know, the sun, moon, and the stars. Actually, okay. Um, and they work, and they don't work today. There, except for the, uh, when you're on the, um, if you're watching the. The spring and fall equinox, the alignment's still accurate, but if you look at anything else, the lunar or the solstices, they're off today because the Earth's tilt is very slowly changing. Well, this is what gets into the rest of Mark's uh, first question here. Uh, he cites the astronomical term precession, uh, which will change what we see now versus several thousand years ago. So reverse engineering, what may have been visible at a particular time in Earth's past, could give us confirmation of the origin date. Uh, th- that's his point. So have you, uh, in his terms, reverse-engineered any of the alignments at the site? Yeah, they did with the uh, north alignment. Today, Polaris is the pole star. It's pretty close to being right on the polar axis. But if you go back in time, that 20, uh, the uh, precession of the equinox is about 26,000-year cycle. Um, if you go back to about four to 6,000 years ago, uh, Thuban, which is a star in Draco, the dragon. It's Alpha Draconis is the star. It's actually not the brightest star in Draco, but um, that was the pole star. Um, and when the Great Pyramid of Cheops is set up in Egypt, uh, the, the, um, that shaft, one of the shafts in the pyramid aligned with that, from what I've read. But um, at that time, up to about 4,000 years ago, that would have been the pole star. And then very slowly, the Earth starts moving, the axis starts moving away from Thuban, and it starts to become circumpolar uh, star. And actually, what I have on my astronomical map here, it says something about 1750 B.C., so about 300 years after we think the site was first set up. 
the uh, limits of Thuban are over two other monoliths. We have the North Star alignment, and then on the left side of it and on the right side of it, there are two more smaller monoliths. And the thought was back in the 70s, and I think still today, is that they must have been here for quite a while, a few few centuries at least, and they marked Thuban at a later date with these two other stones as it started to go circumpolar, you know, from rather than being right over the north axis of the Earth. Um, so that might be an example of that, you know. And, and so not only is the carbon dating and the solstices and everything worked around 4,000 years ago, at that time they were fortunate to have a pole star, and it was Alpha Draconis, okay. or Nubian. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, now, Mark has... Actually, before I get into Mark's second question, I wanted to uh, just ask you uh, whether it be Stonehenge or other sites that are considered astronomical in nature or ceremonial or religious, why would they, uh, particularly your site, why, why would they make these alignments? What would be the purpose? I mean, to predict things for this for agriculture or just, or what? Um, yeah, um, the early, the very early um, megalithic sites uh, weren't, you know, the people had gone from kind of a hunter-gathering um, time period into agricultural, and because um, when you're hunter-gathering, you want to know the migrations of the animals, like fish and birds and uh, land animals, you know, so, but I think it also ties into their um, the view of the heavens as, like, the gods, like the sun god, you know, the moon god, and all of this kind of, or goddess, this kind of thing, um, so, uh, so when you start planting, yeah, when you're planting crops, you want to know when to plant the seed and when to harvest the seed, so that's very important, too, and should become, uh, get into agriculture. But um, it seems like it's a worldwide thing. I mean, anywhere you go, people are interested in kind of a calendar kind of thing. And it might have been to do with their religion. I think it was really strongly tied into the religion, but maybe also for a practical thing, too, you know. It was yeah. good to kind of know, you know, we got to the winter solstice, and now after this, it's going to start to get, you know, the days are going to get longer, the nights are going to get shorter, it's going to start to get a little bit warmer out as we go towards spring. And they'd probably throw a celebration on those days. Those are the quarter days of spring, fall, winter, and summer. And then the cross-border days are actually more important to like a culture like the ancient Celts. August 1st, November 1st, February 1st, and May 1st were actually the beginning of the season. And so like May Day would be the beginning of the summer, and that was called Beltane. Midsummer would be June 20th or 21st. And sometimes people go, oh, Midsummer, I thought it was the first day of summer. But if you look a lot of you know, um, history books and you read about it, you'll see it says Midsummer or Midwinter Solstice. If it's mid, how come it's the beginning? Because, like, November 1st would be the beginning of winter, end of fall, and midwinter would be, you know, December, which we're coming up on not too far from now. Uh, I think it's the 21st this year, and I think it's on a Thursday. February 1st is the end of winter, beginning of spring, and then March 20th, 21st is kind of mid-spring, and they all have names. So it divides the year into eight parts, and I think they probably had these ceremonies going on up here, celebrations, and they may have used it for, you know, when people died and when people were married, perhaps, too. They probably threw a celebration up there. But the site's pretty clean archaeologically, and yeah. that's true of the megalithic sites of Europe. Um, and these megalithic sites are not in Europe, just in Europe. They go into the Black Sea of Russia. I have some pictures of chambers over there. Everybody that looks at it goes, oh, isn't that one of the ones up on, the hill, on your hill or up in Vermont or down in Connecticut? I'm like, no, this is over in Russia in the Ural Mountains, and there's hundreds of them there. And then they go into China. India and Korea had about 100,000. And back to the astronomy, they, as they start to survey all these sites, and there are just thousands of them, so it takes time, the equipment, and the right people to do the survey work, they tend to find that they're aligned with the heavens. So our site's not unusual. It's, it's pretty common, actually. Yeah. 
One point I thought I'd like to make that maybe and maybe get your thoughts on, Dennis, was that um, people sometimes will say, well, gee, you know, these people were too busy trying to survive. You know, where did they get the time to do all this, let alone the technology to work with all these rocks, you know, tons and tons, uh, the stones, that sort of thing. Uh, however, I think the point uh, is, is well taken that, that people in the ancient world, uh, even in sometimes, because maybe more so in climates such as uh, the Northern Hemisphere where there's, you know, snow and you have to really work to make clothing and all this sort of thing, that um, people had really could could make a living maybe 30 35 hours a week tops to and the rest of the time they had to do things that were i guess you could call creative or religious or ceremonial and so uh, as far as the time it takes to uh i suppose build or use a site like this that that maybe wouldn't have been an issue as some people today might think it might have been yeah, they kind of look at it with different types of glasses, you know, like the people were, you know, chasing the game around the countryside. They wouldn't have time to build this. Because it would take an enormous amount of work and effort and a division of labor. Like people could, if you're building a site like this, I don't know if they did it probably seasonally, I would think. You know, mm. they were actually up there quarrying, shaping. But you still have to have people to support them with food and clothing and housing and that kind of thing. So they must have been a little more sophisticated. I mean, they were probably just as smart as we were, you know. I don't think... Yeah, oh, they, if, if they weren't, they were hopefully smarter. They wouldn't have survived. <laughs> they might have been, yeah. yeah. And you see, the, oh my gosh, the stuff they find in Europe, you know, they, I mean, some of the stone circles of Scotland, they laid out were perfect circles. You just put a foci or a pole up, put a rope around it, make a perfect, yeah. but a lot of more kind of not perfect circles. And people said, oh, see those ancient people, they couldn't lay out a perfect circle except for a couple of them, you know, for the life of them. Actually, some of these are like ellipses, so you have two foci and you have a, you know, have a rope and you can make an elliptical circle, so that's a little bit more sophisticated. Yeah. And uh, then you go out and you make a flattened circle, and they said, why do they flatten the circle? Well, you know, pi is 3.14, we don't If you lay three diameters on a circle, it comes up short, but if you flatten the circle, you can lay three diameters, and that's one of the things they kind of found. And then some of the egg-shaped circles, they started... I mean, they might have been using the Pythagorean, okay. the isosceles, and the equilateral. I, I have to interrupt you, Dennis, because we have to take our break. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our discussion with Dennis Stone on archaeoastronomy. So stick with us. Hey everybody, this is the Moose Man. Check out the groove line for the best blues, rock, funk, classic 50s, and the Beatles every single week. Tune in Thursdays from 6 to 7 p.m. That's the groove line right here on Owen. Owen Radio. Owen Worldwide. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Our subject today, archaeoastronomy with... Dennis Stone, and oh, I believe uh, Mark D'Antonio, our co-host, has joined us. So, uh, Mark, welcome aboard. Yeah, thanks, guys. I'm so sorry uh, that I I, I, uh, I overslept this morning. I was up all night. I, uh, oh, dear. I'll explain that later, but okay. just to, to hear Dennis. All right. So, uh, how can that be? Okay. Uh, Mark, I already asked your first question. Dennis, uh, meet Mark. Mark, meet Dennis. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Mark. Okay. Nice <laughs> yeah, you think you'll probably be getting to know each other better if we proceed with with some of our YouTube uh, productions we have in mind. Mark, I've already asked question number one. If you want to uh, pick it up and go to question number two that you had, uh, be my guest well, or be my co-host in this case. I know, and actually, just like 
come in at the last second. I'm so sorry. Um, so you were asked about the sight lines and how they align and all that. And I, unfortunately, I didn't get to hear that answer, but I, I don't. I'll, I'll hear about it after. But yeah. Uh, the, the other question uh, that I had was, you know, Stonehenge in England was repurposed many times uh, in, in periods in excess of a thousand years. So I'm wondering if the American Stonehenge shows evidence uh, that this has happened there too. Uh, with the addition of post holes, new stones that were added or removed. I mean, there's evidence usually you can tell, like it's Stonehenge in England. Um, have you seen that in the American Stonehenge? Yeah, um, we do have some post moles, but uh, those are basically uh, we found a wave bomb site down there in the parking lot. It was about 30 feet across, and we found two new post moles this summer at a very, very interesting uh, site that the past president of the Hampshire Archaeological Society is working on right now. And she told me to kind of keep the cap on right now because she wants to bring in the state archaeologist to look at it before they go too much further. And uh, But the hilltop's very, um, it's all bedrock with a very thin layer of soil. We've run about 100 shovel test pits since 19, well, she joined us in 1989, and uh, she worked on the North Stone and found a fire pit right in front of it. Um, the stone was in danger of actually starting to fall over, so that became a three-year project. The fire pit dated to about six, uh, six I'm trying to think of the date, 690 or 6-something AD, about 700 AD, about 1,300 years old. And it was above the base of the stone, and it had it was undisturbed soil in front of it, and they used the stone as a backstop for a fire. They were not sure who they are. But um, it helped to show that the stone was already there 1,300 years ago, so that we were talking about a Mr. Uh, Patty, the shoemaker of Fama, that you know, ended up with the land during the late 1700s and 1800s. Uh, some people say that he may have built the site or somebody in his family, the whole, the whole complex. Well, this predated them, you know, by, uh, well, you know, over a thousand years. But, um, so, the hilltop's pretty pretty thin soil, and we haven't found, we found a number of fire pits, but really no post moles yet on top of the hill. But we do think that the astronomical center was changed. Uh, we think it was actually what we call the Equinox Sunset Boulder, and I just discovered yep. a map from the late 1970s, and it shows a bunch of astronomical alignments. And the talk at that time during that survey period from 73 to 77 is they thought that the astronomical center was originally over by that boulder. And I remember them talking about that, and I'm like, hmm, how did they determine that? You know, why is that? And then I saw the map recently, and I had forgotten about the map. I hadn't seen it in 40 years. It was my dad's collection, and it's one of the many maps. And it shows us off the, uh, the boulder, and I'm like, wow, that does look pretty interesting, you know. And um, and I had a gentleman over from England recently. He's on the History Channel all the time. And he sent this data to his friend in England. And he said, you know, it looks like the uh, astronomical center was changed. And that was on his own, you know, research. I'm like, geez, you know, how did he, you know, it's the same thing we heard 40 years ago. Um, then we also mentioned about precession. And the North Star was over the North Stone around 4,000 years ago. And on the back of our astronomical map, we have um, um, the extremes of Thuban around 1750 B.C., about, we think about almost 300 years later. Um, as precession, you know, takes place, the pole right. star very slowly changes, becomes circumpolar. So around 1750 B.C., they actually looks like somebody later stood up two smaller monol- monoliths to mark the limits of Thuban at that time, you know. So right. Now, Thuban, oh, go ahead. You, you may have mentioned this already, about it, so I'm sorry about it. Thuban is in the constellation Draco, not in Ursa Minor, which is where Polaris is. So, obviously, uh, and Vega, in fact, uh, is, is going to be the North Star again, uh, as it was in the past, uh, as well. So, 
I mean, the, the, that perception of the poll is something I was curious about, and that was the nature of the first question. So uh, I won't belabor that because I'm sure you went through it, but uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear that they actually made accommodations over the centuries for the changing North Polar Star. It, it seems like they did, yeah. And yeah. we also, you know, and at that time, Draco, you know, and this, this I think it's like the third star from the tail of Draco. In the, in, in the course of the evening, it would be rotating, of course, you know, and, and uh, Draco would have been kind of a center of attention at that time because part of, you know, one of its stars was the, was the North Pole, and some ancient cultures thought that was the gateway to heaven or something like that. Um, yeah. But we have found what looks like at our site throughout Connecticut and all the way out to Colorado is these serpentine walls, the walls that are shaped like serpents. And I'm thinking they may have taken, like, as above, so below, and like the, like the great serpent, in Ohio, in Peoples, Ohio, that may be an example of that possibly too, you know, taking, um, you yeah. know, constellation and bringing it down to earth kind of thing. It's, it's a possibility, you know, we have to kind of think about. I think they're doing that here. We found in the last mm-hmm. year and a half, it's not on any of our literature yet, uh, we think about 11 serpentine walls. And, um, so, and as we look at them, it looks like they might have been building them over generations, you know, like it was a generational thing, you know. Okay. Okay. But it's interesting because in, in the same way, you know, Orion's belt of three stars, Alnataka, Alnalam, and Mintaka, uh, have been translated to ground uh, uh, objects also, archaeological objects like the Great Pyramids in Giza were uh, thought to actually mimic Orion's belt, for instance. I'm not sure if that's actually true. Oh, like you, uh, or you, what you were kind of too, yeah. Yeah, another, yeah, yeah. Orion's belt. You know, the only thing is uh, um, Altera, the eagle, and yeah. uh, down in Treeport, Louisiana, Poverty Point, that those concentric circles are huge, and you never really notice in a picture next just to the north of it is actually an effigy mound. It's, I think, 700 feet by 600 feet by about 60 feet tall, and it's like, it's a gigantic eagle, and it's so, I mean, it would take football fields, and I was thinking maybe that's Altair, you know, the eagle, if they looked at it the way we would look at it, and they brought that down to us. Maybe that's possibly another example of that, you know? Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, we have a question, two questions from a listener, uh, and uh, maybe I ought to give a little background here. And this is from Dan. Do not know where Dan is from. But I think what Dan is uh, getting into here is that in some of the uh, the structures, the Adena culture structures, the mounds in the Midwest of the U.S., there are um, some evidence of burials of large people who to the, the natives would have been giants, and uh, <clears throat> this gets into the idea of, of uh, the, the quote-unquote giant, as Den says it. Uh, is there any evidence of such? There are no evidences of burials, as far as I know, at America's Stonehenge. Am I right, Dennis? That's, uh, we, that is true, yeah. We think some chambers could have been burial chambers, but New England, the acid in the soil pretty much eats up the bones in a few hundred years. Yeah. But in New England, but in New Hampshire, up in Wake, Winnipesaukee, um, in the one of the history books of uh, Lake Winnipesaukee by a doctor, Heald. He writes a lot about that area. Very, very good uh, writer. And he mentions up in, he doesn't mention much about it, but he says, in, I think in Tuftonboro, on the North Shore of Lake Winnipesaukee, I think it was in the 1800s, I don't have the book in front of me, they found a, uh, a giant skeleton there. And oh, whatever right, happened yeah. to it, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you know there was some question about the validity of that. However, uh, I'm familiar yeah, with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it may, may, may not be valid either, you know. Yeah. Uh, Den's uh, second question has to do with a different site. However, um, uh, maybe Mark, uh, if you know about this, uh, Gobekli Tepe, the very ancient site in, in Turkey 
that our good friend Linda Moulton Howe has been researching for years now. Is there any, any evidence of archaeoastronomical archeo, alignments there that, that anybody knows of? I'm not aware of any. Well, I mean, other than being one of the oldest religious sites in the world, I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it, it most certainly will have some type of uh, astronomical significance, and there probably was some type of astronomical significance. Um, now, I can't speak to what Gobekli Tepe's uh, actual purpose was, because really, uh, it, it's a historic site that's like, you know, 12,000 years ago, 12,000 years old, so... Uh, and there's not a whole lot of written material about it other than contemporary study, um, you know, to, to go by. I mean, there's, there's obviously, uh, you know, uh, documents that discuss it throughout history, okay, but it's not, uh, it's not really anything that, uh, you know, I understand. I mean, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was well, it's Neolithic, right? It was actually way, way before, actually. So, I mean, it was a, a long time ago. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, of Gobekli Tepe's uh, astronomical significance, but I'm sure that there is some. Yeah. Uh, and, hey, could I add something in there? I, uh, sure. Of course. I just read a book about that. Yeah, and they had two of the tall T-shaped, I think they're 50-ton monoliths. They they stay in the base of them. They can actually see where they were twisted at some point. Because, you know, they actually can see the bedrock that they were twisted on. And the thought was that they were actually uh, aligned with Deneb, which I believe was a pole star, too. Um, but it was a boy, it was an earlier time period, and I think due to the earth, I haven't read the book for like several months, but actually they twisted the stones to keep the alignment with, I think it was Deneb, or I, I'm pretty sure that's the star, you know, star they were looking at with this particular alignment, uh, due to the earth's tilt or precession, you know. So that's like, I, it, it, there's something going on with that, though, and they were quite amazed by that. They actually took these 50 ton stones and twisted them in their socket, you know. So uh-huh. that's the only thing I can add to that, yeah. Okay, um, Mark, uh, go ahead. No, I was gonna, I was gonna say that, uh, I, I know that, you know, in this cycle of procession, uh, different stars are relatively close to the pole, but, uh, just to clear up a, a misconception none of you have, but maybe someone in the audience might have, is that, uh, the North Pole, polar stars aren't necessarily the brightest stars in the sky. I mean, some people say, oh, the North Star is the brightest star. Actually, it's not. Thuban is actually, uh, relatively dim compared to Polaris. Okay, which is our current North Star. Uh, so uh, you'd have to have a dark sky sight to be able to see Thuban, you know, you know, you know, shining brilliantly in the sky. So uh, it just happens to be a star that's near the actual uh, North Pole of the rotating Earth. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, I again throughout history, I've always been fascinated by these these uh, astronomical sites, places like Stonehenge, and now the American Stonehenge. Thanks to you, Dennis. Uh, that oh, thank you, Buck. And is, isn't it true that uh, Alpha Draconis is not even the brightest star in Draco, right? I, mean, I always thought it was, but it's not the brightest star in its own constellation, so Alpha sh- it shouldn't be Alpha, I guess, right? Should be a- yeah, if it's not, it, yeah. Alpha yeah. typically stands for the, the, you know, the designation for the brightest star, and, and they use the yeah. Greek alphabet, yeah. you know, letter Alpha is the first one. <laughs> okay. Uh, ben, did you have anything else before we... Uh Move on to another question. Uh, I think I think I'm I think I'm good. There's okay. I'm I'm still I'm still working on some things. All right. There, there are two issues here that, that might come up, and Dennis, perhaps you could uh, get into this. There is writing that has been found at America's Stonehenge site. Uh, it's generally thought to be Phoenician or various different different kinds, and 
Um, as we know, the natives, uh, at least as far as we know, except for the Cherokees, and that wasn't until 1835, did not have written languages. Do any of the writings, first of all, have they all been translated, the ones that have been found? And secondly, do any of them refer to uh, astronomical phenomena of any kind, so celestial phenomena, alignments? Um, they haven't all been uh, translated, um, but there was, uh, according to Barry himself from Harvard University, he was here in 1975 for the first time, and I believe he died in 94, wrote several books, and he uh, looked at some of the markings that were found, um, some of them going back to, um, well, uh, in the Chamberlain Ruins, they found three different ones, two in 64 and one in 67, and they sat in our museum on display as unknown markings, and so when he first visited us, he saw them, and took him back to Arlington, Mass, to his house, and he spent some time looking at him, trying to, you know, decipher him. Um, he said one of them was Iberian Punic, um, and the other one was uh, Libyan, and, it, and then he eventually found uh, Celt-Iberian um, markings here as well as, you know, and he's also not just at our site, but all the sites throughout New England and all the way out to the Milk River in Alberta, Canada, and down into South America. But one of them uh, said that this, uh, that chamber was a sun uh, transit and it was dedicated to Baal on behalf of the Canaanites. And mm-hmm. uh, the other one in Libyan, uh, he could only get a partial translation because part of the uh, stone is uh, busted. And the other one looked like it was kind of a map, I guess, or some sort of a design. But uh, that raised a lot of controversy, that, you know, the, the, uh, and it's still not settled today, you know, as to uh, whether, that, whether he translated these things correctly or incorrectly. But at the mouth of the Merrimack River, which goes right up within four miles of our site from the ocean, you can navigate up to that point today and probably closer 4,000 years ago, they found a coin in 19, uh, 2000, I think 2010, right after my dad passed away, they found a coin coming out of a construction site right near the mouth of the Merrimack, and it was Phoenician. And uh, they actually gave, I guess, the date of it, and I can't recall offhand, but that was kind of an interesting find down there. That's just one of many different types of uh, you know, coins and things that have been found in the Americas that really don't belong here. Um, but uh, so Phoenician, Libyan, and Celt have been found on this on this particular site, according to Barry Fell. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. We have a question from Cheryl in Nebraska, and Cheryl wants to know about ley lines. Uh, has America Stonehenge been lined up with any other sites uh, in the world or in New England uh, when it comes to ley lines? And that's maybe something we should explain. Um, we. Uh, our personal opinion is, is the idea of ley lines or, or uh, energy lines are not entirely accurate because they move more like the telluric current, that kind yeah. of thing. But uh, has, has along with astronomical alignments at, at the site itself, Dennis, which I think the question was intended to discover, uh, have you lined that the whole site up with other sites in other places? Yeah, great question. Um, my father even has a book in 1927 by Alfred Watkins. I think it was called The Old Straight Track. And it, he, Alfred Watkins kind of looked at these sites like in England, saying, oh, this Stonehenge is aligned with Old Sarum, with the, you know, Salisbury Cathedral, and then a couple other sites, you know, over there. And he thought it was done for a practical pers- purpose, where these people could actually follow these things, you know, as they're going across the countryside. Um, and then later people added energy and power and that kind of thing to them. But, yeah, people were looking at this in the 70s, you know, and they were saying, gee, I wonder if uh, on the summer solstice or one of these other alignments there are other sites. We do know there's about 800 sites in the northeast. We think they're pre-Columbian sites. 800? Have a, about, yeah, about 800, wow. yeah. Um, and if you go to Stonington, Connecticut, that's just one. There's 8,000 beaches in that Gunji one town. You know? yeah. Well, Gunji right next door, and we just became aware of Stonington um, last year from a oh. book called Ceremonial Stonework. And okay. they got 400 
uh, serpentine walls. They got 25 stone structures. But dungeon walls we knew about, but right next door, we were unaware of that. I knew Thompson, Connecticut, and, you know, Danbury had structures and that kind of, and Lutus, Connecticut. But that was a, a big surprise to all of us that a gentleman put the book together last, and it came out in October last year, and I was like, oh, not only do we have very similar features at our site, but he had 8,000 features at this one, what we can call Stonington a site, I guess, you know. But there are 800 places. And in, um, down in uh, Westchester, Putnam County, in New York, there's about 200 uh, of these sites that we call megalithic-type sites, similar to the uh, Boyne River in, in Ireland, which I visited with my dad. There's like 200 megalithic sites in the Boyne River just north of Dublin, very similar to that, you know, in, in the density of structures. But, um, yeah, we were interested, you know, and the problem back in the 70s, you'd have to actually physically go to these sites and try to map them, you know, physically yeah. do it yourself. And now with Google Earth, you know, it becomes a lot easier. And what my son did uh, five years ago is he just followed the summer solstice sunrise. We were talking about that stone earlier across New England. And um, he just kept going across New England to see if there's anything aligned with it. He decided to just go right across the uh, Atlantic Ocean. If you were, if you had Superman vision, if you could look, you could see around the world somehow, you would actually see that that line goes right through the center of the largest trilithon at Stonehenge, that, that particular alignment. And that was, uh, we found that five years ago, and I was like, wow, we never knew, we never knew that. We don't know what it means, but we never knew standing there looking at that. If we could see around the world, we would be looking right through Stonehenge, right? right. After that, we found that, that our true south line, it goes right over Machu Picchu, uh, went to Solstice Sunset, goes through Chihuahuacan, the moon pyramid, and the uh, equinox, uh, sunset goes through Chaco Canyon. The sunrise on Equinox goes through the Canary Island pyramids, and uh, I think there are a couple others too. So I can say there's some interesting alignments. We don't know what they really mean, but some people call them ley lines. Yeah, and there was dowsing. We're in a book by Francis Hitching from 1978, yeah. and he shows um, water doing water dowsing on the walls. Actually, water below the walls, according to them, but the um, the uh, ley line, uh, straight lines, going out on our astronomical lines, particularly the summer solstice, and that was 40 years ago they picked up on that, and then we found out that they didn't know it in 1978, of course, but this line goes right through the center of Stonehenge, which, um, and we got the booklet here, it's kind of cool, Francis Hitching, and there's a couple other well-known people that put this book together in 1978. Okay. And uh, I was like, whoa, look at that. <laughs> okay, well, we're, we're, we burned up this hour pretty quickly, uh, Dennis, and thank you. Uh, I did want to mention uh, there's another email here from our very good friend Susan Spooler, who is the organizer of the Greater New England UFO Conference, who points out uh, something we should point out, which is that uh, everyone on this show today is going to be speaking at the Greater New New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Mass. on October 5th and 6th, 2018. Uh, if the gods uh, spare us all by then, and uh, so well, that'll be that'll be wonderful. I think it'll, it's a kind of a new lineup of uh, some new speakers, and and should be great. So, Dennis, uh, tell us uh, again where people can find out more about uh, America's Stonehenge and you and the website, etc. Well, I'd like to thank all of you for having me on today, and Mark too for meeting you. Um, hopefully, you all can come back up here and visit us sometime. <laughs> Oh, uh, my, oh, Mark doesn't know it yet, but yeah, I think he's going to get drafted into this uh, production we're thinking uh, of for YouTube at your site. So. Oh, that would be wonderful. Absolutely, yeah. And I hope to see all of you soon. Um, but America Stonehenge, you know, it's uh, StonehengeUSA.com, and there's the email address in there and a the phone number they can call us at. And, um, and there's a lot of YouTube, you know, videos out there on us and stuff. So, uh, But if anybody wants to give us a call or an email, we'll be happy to try to answer the uh, question for sure. Very good. Okay, uh, well, thank you very much, Dennis. And But before you go, maybe you'd like to listen to Mark tell us about himself and where people can find out more about what he's doing. Well, thank wow, you very thank much. You. I'll be listening. 
I'm, I'm okay. glad you gave me the opportunity to say that in spite of the fact that I was so late. We uh, forgive I you. I don't deserve it, but uh, thank you. Um, uh, my, uh, I operate the uh, Sky Tour live stream, uh, Clear Night Deep Sky Stream, where we look at objects in the sky and show people. Uh, and, and that's why I was late. I was up all night repairing the observatory. The roof got torn off uh, in the violent wind. Oh, and you, you can't have thousands of dollars worth of equipment exposed to the no, elements. No, no, no. Yeah, right. <clears throat> so uh, I, I just sort of fell asleep uh, a couple hours ago, and, and 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 Ben actually managed to get me up. So I apologize <laughs> for that, to all of you. He used to do that to me when he was a baby. Yeah, I'm really good at that game. <laughs> well, you, you got me, and I'm so glad you did, because it was great to hear the rest of Dennis talk, because uh, he's a fascinating guy. And, and so... Uh, now my, uh, I have a book coming out, uh, actually, and hopefully uh, I have a publisher, and, and Paul knows about that, I believe. Yeah, good. Uh, we just have to talk about that a little more. And uh, the book is called Populated Universe, and it discusses my tenets that uh, life in the universe is the rule, not the exception. But I go at it from a scientific perspective, not just the I want to believe with a tinfoil hat type of approach that uh, you sometimes get. And, you know, we have enough of that. It's time to bring science into the mix, right? Yeah, very good. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, uh, I don't know, did Dennis uh, leave us? No, he's still here. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, Dennis, again, thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll be seeing you soon. And uh, I think that um, a couple of our listeners brought up a subject that might be uh, something for an- another show, which is alignments of different sites, not just at sites, you know. Indeed. So let- let's do that. So we'll be talking to you soon, and thanks again for being with us. Well, thank you very much. Okay, so let's uh, start our announcements there, Ben. What's uh, what's cooking? Alrighty, so our final event of this very hectic le- lecture season uh, will be on Saturday, November 18th. Uh, we'll do a charity event at a Cottage by the Bay in Dover, New Hampshire, to benefit the um, Miss Portsmouth Area Scholarship Program, and that's from 5 to 8 p.m. Tickets are $20 per person. You will get not only us, but a nice buffet dinner, and our subject will be Behind the Paranormal, Is Everything You Know Wrong? Um... Uh, getting tickets uh, through the link on our main website that's behindtheparanormal.com and uh, we are looking forward to booking events for 2018 well, we've already booked a few you don't know it yet Ben but oh, uh, uh, you know, I, love I love the looks I get when, when I tell them we're going to be presenting to the uh, Miss America candidates in New Hampshire I think that's <coughs> people think that's pretty cool uh, anyway, we sell and autograph our books at these events, of course, and uh, when Marx comes out, uh, he'll be doing the same thing. Uh, we include our latest book, of course, uh, released in July, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of, also available on Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle. And if you can't get to any of our events and you would like an autographed copy of any of our books, uh, you can get them at the show's website, uh, our online bookstore, that is BehindTheParanormal.com. And our 2016 book, the first in the Behind the Paranormal series, was Behind the Paranormal. Everything You Know is Wrong is in most bookstores. They don't have it. They can get it. It's also available at all our forthcoming events, uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, etc., etc., the usual suspects, uh, online retailers. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com, where you'll find over 720 free recorded shows from both ON 1240 here and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Now, Mark, um, to tell us a little more about your – I love your uh, streaming podcast that you do on YouTube. And uh, tell people when they can see that and uh, what the next subject's going to be. Sure. Actually, uh, the SkyTour Livestream is our channel on YouTube, and you can look up SkyTour Livestream with Mark D'Antonio or SkyTour Livestream 
subscribe, tell all your friends, click the bell, and uh, be alerted when I go online. Uh, it's a clear night only stream, uh, but uh, I'm working on doing, uh, getting to the point where I can do uh, several streams a week, whether it's clear or not. Yeah. Uh, now, the, the current observatory is located in Connecticut, but it's going to be moving to Arizona under a dark sky uh, in the next uh, probably 18 to 24 months. I have to you know, plan that move carefully. Uh, uh, we and, don't want to uh, think about that. Because it's nice to have you so close by. I know, but uh, I'm only a phone call away. And right, that's true. Yes, this is the 21st century. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Mark actually has a, a, an observatory in his backyard. Got to love it. So, Ben, uh, what do we got uh, on YouTube here? So, for uh, we are doing some, some planning for some, some upcoming YouTube uh, productions. Uh, so, we I'm going to be working out the logistics uh, relatively soon about a, a trip to Mystery Hill. And uh, yeah. take it, taking some time, maybe doing doing some um, in, informative little little bits about it, and then on top of that, do maybe doing some other other field trip type stuff as well as our our basic you know uh, case files series. So we're just working working on that now that every, everything is sort of starting to die down. Oh yeah, finally, uh, we we actually were uh, Ben couldn't make it, but one of our producers and myself and uh, one of our research assistants went up to uh, America Stonehenge for the to watch the eclipse. Uh, on uh, the uh, a few months ago, it's a very funny picture on Facebook of of Dennis and I sort of uh, throwing caution to the winds, and we're, we're not really we're staring at the sky, but not really at the eclipse with no glasses. So people <laughs> said, "What are you doing?" Anyway, trying uh, to go blind. Uh, <laughs> so uh, there are a number of other books that uh, I fused a few decades ago, <clears throat> and that's uh, Faces at the Window, Footsteps in the Attic, and several others. Uh, that we're going to be hopefully bringing out a a new edition of that with uh, uh, combined with some new cases. So uh, we're going to see how that goes, and um, they, they are available at Amazon.com. And there may be a few stores that still have them. Also, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny, uh, which uh, gets into something that people are awfully interested in, and we'll be doing some more programs on this next year, which is uh, UFOs, the Paranormal, and God. Or religion, and, and mm. I guess I don't know. I think I'm probably one of the few people in this field with a formal theological education. So um, you know, not enough to kind of look at the subject. I think objectively, and uh, people seem really interested. So we're going to see. Uh, we're going to be doing some more uh, on that. Uh, so what do we have coming up next week, Mark? Well, next Sunday, I hear that you're going to have uh, uh, researcher Mike McClelland on, right? And that's right here on ON twelve forty. Yep. That's November nineteenth. And he's going to talk about UFOs and synchronicity, I hear. That should be pretty cool. Yeah, that, that should be really good. So, um, and also, he brings in the notion of, of some sort of connection with owls. Oh, yes. That's not something you hear every day. Yeah, I keep, <laughs> I keep hearing and seeing stuff about that. And, you know, I do like our fine feathered friends, but I, maybe they have something more to do. Well, you know, in our but pre-interview phone I, call with him, um, he sounded very reasonable and very very, uh, a very rational explanation for that. So it should be an interesting show. So anyway, well, we'll I, leave I, you I have s- to say, yeah. I have to say one quick thing. You know, in the Wanjuna legend down in Australia, uh, there were kids that, that were torturing an owl, and the Wanjuna, the, these creatures that came from the sky and lived on the water, wiped out the Aborigines in the northern Kimberley region of Australia. Well, there you go. Well, I'm afraid uh, we're, we're, we're done. There's no more time. But anyway, I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno. And I'm Mark D'Antonio, taking up all the time. That's right. <laughs> Anytime. We'll see you next week, folks. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition.